Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 4, The Airmail Pilot Strike of 1919. Leon Smith was known as a bonehead, but not because he was stupid. He got that nickname after walking into a whirling prop and living to tell about it. Stunned, bloody, and partially scalped. On the morning of July 22, 1919, Leon Smith was about to prove that there was nothing wrong with his mental processes. He reported for work before dawn at the Belmont Flying Field in suburban New York City, ready to assume his duties as a post office airmail service pilot. After loading seven sacks of first-class mail into the forward locker of his de Havilland DH-4 biplane, Smith paused, lit a cigarette, and waited. His scheduled takeoff time came and went, and still, Smith sat there on the muddy tire of the DH-4, pondering. Over the past two weeks, 15 airmail service planes had crashed, killing two pilots and seriously injuring others. In every instance, fog was the culprit, and as Smith sat there, a thick, murky blanket of it obscured his vision. Visibility was so bad that he could see only about 100 yards, not even to the end of the airfield. So Smith waited, hoping the fog would lift. Of all the hazards early pilots feared, fog was the worst, even more so than thunderstorms. A pilot could at least see a thunderstorm and avoid it in those days by flying under it. Fog was different. It could sneak up on you almost instantaneously, and then you'd be in big trouble. You'd try to get a few feet lower where you might be able to pick up that familiar windmill that was your next checkpoint. But then panic would set in when you realized that you ought to be approaching the windmill by now, and you still couldn't see anything except a blurry row of crops right below. That's when you'd yank back the throttle and land immediately. But what if that blur below turned out to be trees instead of a nice flat farmer's field? Then you would be faced with an airmail service pilot's worst choice. Either a crash landing or a blind climb into the fog without instruments, flying by the seat of your pants or the sound of the engine or a change in the pitch of the wind through the wing guy wires. Anything to tell you that you were right side up. Airmail service pilots were, by nature, brave men, but bitter experience had taught them to avoid fog at any cost. That's why Leon Smith was still sitting there when his non-pilot post office boss shouted at him to get moving. I'll be damned if I kill myself for a sack of two-bit letters, Smith said, trying to explain to his supervisor that the weather was unflyable. Smith allegedly used abusive language in challenging the supervisor to find a pilot, any pilot, who would fly that day. The supervisor fired Smith on the spot, turned to the backup pilot, Hamilton Lee, and ordered him to take to the air. He too refused to fly and was also fired. Then two more pilots refused. 
The pilots had been unhappy over wages and working conditions for a long time before the situation at Belmont erupted. But it seemed impossible that they would ever cause any real labor problem for the post office, let alone go on strike, because they just didn't seem to be that type. There had been no hint of future trouble when the airmail was inaugurated in Washington, D.C. the year before. On that day, when the first sacks of mail were scheduled to be flown from Washington to Philadelphia, President Wilson and his wife joined political bigwigs at the old polo grounds that was temporarily converted into a flying field, while nervous functionaries self-consciously loaded sacks of mail aboard the Jenny and the two pilots posed stiffly in front of the plane for newspaper photographers. At first, the air mail service proved remarkably efficient as it expanded westward to Chicago via Cleveland. Instrumental to that success was the skill of the pilots who flew the antiquated war surplus jennies and DH-4s. Most pilots were ex-military men who had resigned their commissions to take civil service appointments, and many of them had become pilots prior to World War I. Because Americans have always been fascinated by speed and the technology of transportation, air mail service pilots were the objects of genuine admiration, with their exploits regularly featured in newspapers and magazines by the early 1920s. Their superiors in the post office department in Washington also praised the pilots in the early phases of the service, when their skill at contour or terrain flying, as it was called then, enabled them to complete over 90% of their scheduled flights. But post office officials became openly critical of the pilots when the service expanded westward across the hell's stretch of the Alleghenies and established schedules based on the original Washington-New York corridor proved impossible to maintain. All-weather capability was only a distant dream in 1919. In the second year of airmail operations, government officials came to expect and demand a high percentage of completed flights. Most of the pressure came from two men, Postmaster General Albert Burleson and Otto Prager, the assistant Postmaster General in charge of the airmail. Together, Burleson and his crony Prager, a paunchy, bespectacled newspaper man from Texas whose only qualification for office was his friendship with Burleson, pushed hard to make the airmail a success. Burleson never tired of bragging that under his administration, the post office had produced an annual surplus as high as $20 million. He claimed to have accomplished this by eliminating wasteful and extravagant methods of operation and making no expenditure for which adequate service has not been rendered. In his annual message to Congress in June 1919, Burleson declared the high standard of daily perfect flight is being maintained regardless of weather conditions. Prager was a carbon copy of his boss when it came to pension pennies, and he was equally ignorant of aviation. He once told a gathering of engineers that a commercial flying machine should be able to land in a city lot near the heart of town instead of on a 40-acre field where the commuters live. This combination of ignorance and tight-fistedness set Burleson and Prager on a collision course with the pilots. In midsummer 1919, the East Coast experienced a period of extremely bad weather. But post office supervisors, most of whom were not pilots, 
insisted that the pilots fly as usual. As a result, there were the crashes and fatalities which led to Leon Smith's refusal to fly that foggy morning. The deaths forced the pilots of the Air Mail's Eastern Division to hold a series of meetings during which they decided to uphold their authority to determine if the weather was flyable. They had precedent on their side, as even Army aviators were given some discretion in this area. The pilots agreed that if one pilot refused to fly, all of them would refuse to fly. So when Leon Smith said no, they all kept their word, and the strike began. While Prager had heard that the pilots were in a fighting mood, he was more than ready to tangle with them. When he learned that Smith and Lee had refused to fly, he issued a press release approving their firing, citing postal regulations for letter carriers as justification. Upon receiving a telegram of protest by the air pilots, Prager warned that by sending an anonymous telegram, they were conspiring against the government. The pilots replied in an open letter, released to the press, that it was not a conspiracy to avoid killing oneself for the sake of a two-cent stamp. Prager huffily responded that the post office would be in control of its operations, saying, These pilots came into the service as every other pilot, with the knowledge that they must comply with orders, and where flying conditions are such that they cannot operate, they have the option to resign. If they refuse... Removal must be made. Sympathizing with underdog pilots, the reporters asked a series of hostile, probing questions that angered Prager. Seemingly flustered, he admitted that there had been a series of bad crashes in the weeks preceding the strike, but shrugged them off as something which happens all the time. He then pompously doubled down and said that he would never recognize a pilot's union, nor would he ever have to, because there were plenty of other pilots. All in all, Prager's performance was a public relations disaster. The upshot of Prager's bungling, which the press faithfully reported in headline stories, was that public opinion shifted strongly in favor of the pilots, and so did support for them in Congress. Two standing committees in the House of Representatives announced they would investigate the firings. The chairman of the post office committee announced that he would personally investigate the firings, which, under the civil service rules, required a hearing that Prager had refused to grant. And lastly, the pilots struck a sympathetic chord when they issued a public manifesto declaring, We will insist that the man who risks his own life be the judge, not somebody who stays on the ground and risks other people's lives. The pilots went back to work just four days after Smith's refusal, largely because of the efforts of Charles Stanton, fellow pilot and the superintendent of the airmail. Unlike Prager, who was making a fool of himself in public, Stanton worked feverishly behind the scenes to arrange a deal whereby if the pilots went back to work, either Prager or the postmaster general would meet with a committee of their representatives to discuss grievances. Despite the pilots' strong position, they emerged from the conference with only half a victory. Prager agreed to a small pay raise, although pay had not been directly at issue, and to hire pilots as field managers who would, in case of dispute, take to the skies in order to demonstrate that the weather was flyable. 
But the compromise would not be without a cost. Prager's pride demanded a sacrifice, the career of Leon Smith, who had earlier described Prager as a damn donkey. Hamilton Lee was rehired, and the pilot committee did their best to stand behind Smith, but it finally agreed to make his rehiring the subject of further discussion. Those first airmail pilots learned two crucial lessons from the strike. First, they needed some kind of organization or structure through which to communicate with each other and protect themselves. And secondly, they needed a leader, one of their own who was willing to step forward and be their spokesman. Soon, the Airmail Pilots of America was formed. But it was a weak, unaffiliated organization that soon folded. They then tried to get around the leadership problem by hiring a lawyer, but that proved too expensive. The pilots did little else, and within a few months, they were faced again with the same old problem of officials making decisions that showed no understanding of the risk of flying. Despite their failure to put together any lasting organization, the pilots knew what needed to be done. Years later, after the airmail service had been phased out and most airmail pilots had gone to work for the new private airlines, most of them strongly supported some kind of pilots' association. At the time of the 1919 strike, Dave Banky was an unknown pilot trying to make a living selling rides and barnstorming in his surplus Jenny. When he emerged to assume the crucial leadership role in the forming of the organization that later became the Airline Pilots Association, the old airmail pilots were the rock upon which he built. They remembered the strike of 1919, and Banky could always depend on them to sell the concept. Stories about Fat Otto Prager usually got the point across to younger pilots that unionization was the key to survival. As for Leon Smith, despite Prager's promise that there would be further discussions, he was never rehired. Eventually, he disappeared into obscurity and died in 1960, the first martyr in the struggle of the piloting profession to protect itself. He would not be the last. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 4 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpha.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpha 2019. All rights reserved.